Hi, this is Justin Hibbert, pastor of New Hope Chapel. Thanks so much for listening to our podcast. I pray that God uses this message to touch your heart. Well, good morning to all of you. This is not my usual clothes. I, I, I try not to get all fancy. This is also not a doctor's outfit. So for the, some, some are saying this was a lab coat or something. No. Um, this is actually something Carlene made, a kittle. And this is typically what's worn on Yom Kippur. Um, it's actually worn on a few occasions. Yom Kippur, Passover, if you recall, on Passover. And uh, Jewish men will wear it for their wedding. It's a symbol of, it's all white, symbol of purity. And then you have the prayer shawl over top of that with, um, with all of these different knots representing each of the laws uh, in the Old Testament. And so today I'll just be wearing that. Tomorrow I'll wear jeans and a button down. If you have your Bible, turn with me, if you would, to Joshua chapter 6 as we take a look at Yom Kippur. I, I love the children's messages because it's always like, uh, do you, I don't know if you parents fear your kids being up here, like, oh, now it's going to come out what we're teaching or not teaching at home. It's all going to come out right here. Jesus cleans it with a, win- a Windex. <laughs> All right. In Joshua chapter 6, you may wonder why we're looking at this passage for Yom Kippur, but I'll, hopefully I'll explain that as we go. And Joshua chapter 6 says, Now the gates of Jericho were securely barred because of the Israelites, and no one went out and nobody came in. And then the Lord said to Joshua, See, I have delivered Jericho into your hands, along with its king and its fighting men. March around the city once with all the armed men and do this for six days. Have seven priests carry trumpets of ram's horns in front of the ark. And on the seventh day, march around the city seven times with the priests blowing the trumpets. When you hear them sound a long blast on the trumpets, have the whole army give a loud shout. And then the wall of the city will collapse and the army will go up, everyone straight in. So Joshua, son of Nun, called the priests and said to them, Take up the ark of the covenant of the Lord and have seven priests carry trumpets in front of it. And he ordered the army, Advance, march around the city with an armed guard going ahead of the ark of the Lord. Let's pray. Lord, as we look at this passage and everything that Yom Kippur, that you designed, May our hearts be open to understanding more about you and your holiness and how it all points to the day when it would be fulfilled through Jesus the Messiah. And as we celebrate his coming, his death, and his resurrection, and we apply that to our lives, help us to anxiously look forward to the day with great anticipation when he returns and we are with you. Father, I pray that my words would be your words today and that our thoughts would be your thoughts, and that the meditations of our hearts would be acceptable and pleasing in your sight. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. When we look at the passage of Jericho and this march that happens around the city, that walled city, it sort of reminds me of some of the military parades that we see in today's day. It seems like every nation has some sort of military parade where they show off their power, their their troops, and they show off their weapons, 
and they show off their arsenal. And what's interesting is that these parades aren't generally in front of other countries. They're generally in front of themselves, kind of like, look how great we are, let's pat ourselves on the back. And maybe a little bit of PR to those neighboring countries to say, we are to be taken seriously, even when we look a little silly and ridiculous, right? And if we look at the, the, the passage here of the march around Jericho, it seems just like that, some sort of military parade with all of its Lego glory, and perhaps even a little bit ridiculous. They're carrying around a gold box. There's a lot of trumpets going on. And some might say that the purpose of this march around the city of, Jer- of Jericho is to bring fear into the hearts of Jericho, to make them afraid and tremble and intimidate them and melt them down. But I don't think that's the case. And the reason I don't think that's the case is because in Joshua chapter 2, we read that when Rahab confronted or when the uh, spies found Rahab, she says to them, I know that the Lord, and this is, this is some time before the, um, the attack on Jericho. So he, she says, I know that the Lord has given you this land and that a great fear of you has fallen on us so that all who live in this country are melting in fear because of you. We have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea for you when you came out of Egypt. And that was, what, 40 years before this. And what you did to Sihon and Og, the two kings of the Amorites east of the Jordan, whom you completely destroyed. And when we heard of it, our hearts melted in fear, and everyone's courage failed because of you. For the Lord your God is God in heaven above and on the earth below. So Jericho was already totally intimidated. They had locked their doors, their gates, because they knew that Israel was on, uh, on the brink of entering. No one was going in, and no one was going out, and everyone was already terrified. So why did they? Why did they have to march around the city like this? I think the exercise was more for Israel than for Jericho. I'm sure by the fifth day, there were some people that maybe scaled the walls and looked out and was like, this is kind of weird. You know, this, this Israel group, they're, 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 a, they're a fruity bunch. Look at them, kind of walking around there, blowing their trumpets. What is this, a musical? Like, what's going on, right? And I'm sure the people of Israel felt pretty vulnerable. Like, what are we doing? Why are we walking around like this? This seems kind of silly. Well, it was a lesson. It was a lesson for Israel more than any, anyone else that God, this was God's war, not theirs, and they were going to win it, like he says to Zechariah, not by might nor by power, but my spirit, says the Lord Almighty. And so they walked around carrying this gold box, the Ark of the Covenant, and that's where I want to I pause for a minute because I don't think we can talk about this story and we can't talk about Yom Kippur without taking a look at this gold box called the Ark of the Covenant. The Ark of the Covenant was a special box. It was prescribed in, in the book of Exodus in the law. It had very specific dimensions to it. It was made of acacia wood, and it was overlaid entirely with gold. Inside the box were three things. The stone tablets of the law, manna from the wilderness, and Aaron's budding rod. But what was inside wasn't as powerful as what was outside. In Exodus chapter 25, verse 22, the Lord says to Moses, there above the cover, 
between the two cherubim that are over the Ark of the Covenant Law, I will meet with you and give you all my commands for the Israelites. So that space, that cover, with the two cherubim, with the wings extended, that was considered the mercy seat right between it. That was an extremely powerful place because that's where the Lord himself said he would dwell and he would give all, and he would meet with Israel and give them his commands. If you think about how powerful this thing is, and and I'm sure you see this and you immediately think of Indiana Jones like I do, and you think of the movie, The Raiders of the Lost Ark, where they capture the ark and they're curious about the ark and they keep it and they travel with it in different places and it's an archaeological find and then at the end they open it up, right, and the angels come out and melt off their faces and it's really kind of a gruesome scene. And um, you can think about that type of curiosity or if, if, if what would you do if you had the ark? Where would you put it? Would you be like maybe like the University of Maryland football team who comes out and like rubs the turtle because it's good luck? Maybe you come out and rub the ark. All right, good luck for me today. I've got the ark on my side. But that's not how it was supposed to be. The ark was never supposed to be touched, not by anyone. When the priests carried it, they carried it using these poles, almost sort of like a casket. And they carried the ark of the covenant into battles and they carried it with them wherever they went. And even in this scene where, where they're crossing the Jordan River, the priests step into the water, the water separates, and the people are able to walk on dry ground. And Joshua even says to the people, he says, don't go near the ark. Don't, don't go near it, don't touch it, don't look at it, don't think about it. You stay away from the ark because it's so powerful. In fact, there were some that tried to capture the ark like the Philistines in 1 Samuel, and they put it, in their temple made for Baal. Well, the next morning they woke up and found that Baal was laying prostrate in front of the Ark of the Covenant. The Ark of the Covenant, almost like it had a mind of its own. It was powerful. If we had that Ark of the Covenant, we would think we would need to build it in the biggest military fortress that we have, protect it from any part of society, from people taking it from us. But that's not what God did. God had them put it in a tent, in a tabernacle. In a little tent in the wilderness, not fortified, there's no big walls around it. It's almost totally exposed, except it's in the inner room in the most holy place there in that tent. I think that Joshua felt that he needed to protect the ark. In fact, did you catch that in Joshua chapter 6 and verse 7? Remember, Joshua gets the commands from God of what to do in Jericho. And look what he says. Look what he adds to that command. In verse 7, he says, advance, march around the city with an armed guard going ahead of the ark. But you recall that God's command was, have the priests with the trumpets go in front of the ark. I think Joshua was a little bit concerned that someone might take the ark. But all along, God is trying to teach Joshua and Israel that it's not by might, it's not by power, but it's by my spirit. I can handle myself. And so when we look at this Ark of the Covenant, it was an extremely powerful artifact. It is the most holy artifact in all of Israel, the most powerful thing that Israel possessed. And because of its power, because of of everything that it stood for, it needed to be separated from man. And so God designed 
to have the ark put in the innermost place of the tabernacle and separated by a curtain, and not just a curtain, but a curtain that was sewn together so that it was about six inches thick so that no one would accidentally go into that ark of the covenant. Because the ark of the covenant, more than anything, was an object lesson for Israel that God is completely holy. And holy, I don't mean just kind of mystical and ethereal. I mean he is he is completely otherly and different from us. You know, I, when I hear um, different theologians on TV like Oprah talk about God <laughs> and some of the other things that I, that I hear, I, I, I think I've, I've sort of narrowed it down to the most fundamental theological flaw is a failure to recognize and respect the holiness of God. That these people talk about God in terms of me. Look what God can do for me. God is all about me and it's all about what I want. And God is here to serve me. In fact, we see this flaw in Joshua as well. In Joshua chapter 5, he meets a soldier right before this scene in Jericho. He meets a soldier and he says, are you for us or are you against us? And he says, neither. I'm the captain of the Lord's army. Take off your shoes, you're standing on holy ground. So Joshua had to learn that this was not his battle. This was not Israel's battle. It was not Jericho versus Israel. It was God's initiative. And Joshua was a soldier in God's army, not the other way around. You see, if we fail to recognize and acknowledge the holiness of God, there's some fundamental breakdowns that happen in our theology. Because if we fail to acknowledge the holiness of God, we fail to recognize the weight of our own sin. And if we fail to recognize the weight of our own sin, we therefore remove any need for justice. Because if there is no sin, there is no justice. And if we remove any need for justice, then we absolutely remove the need for mercy. Because if there is no justice, there is no mercy. And so we transform God into this independent, sovereign being, into a mere puppet who's there to serve us in our pleasure. Israel learned this lesson the hard way on a number of occasions. It began with Aaron's sons. Remember, Aaron was Moses' brother. Aaron was the first high priest of Israel. And Aaron's sons got a little too chummy with God. And they came into the ark, into the most holy place, and in front of the ark, and God killed them for it because their sins were numerous. And they didn't recognize the weight of holiness. So the Lord says to Moses, he says in Leviticus 16, the Lord spoke to Moses after the death of the two sons of Aaron who died when they approached the Lord. The Lord said to Moses, tell your brother Aaron that he is not to come whenever he chooses into the most holy place behind the curtain in front of the atonement cover on the ark or else he will die. For I will appear in the cloud over the atonement cover. This is how Aaron is to enter into the most holy place, and follows this with a very long, uh, detailed um, ceremony that is called Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. But ultimately, all of this, and we, we think of this as, well, God's just being mean. Why doesn't he want us to come into his presence? Why doesn't he want us to do this? But God is teaching them something very important. He's helping to illustrate an important theological point that we read about in Isaiah 55, because if we miss this point, we miss the holiness of God. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, 
Neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. I always, whenever someone says, I can't imagine God, I always say, I always kind of stop them by being like, why should you be able to imagine God? What kind of God is it if you can imagine and completely imagine all of his sovereignty? And so God prescribes a very detailed ceremony because it's, you know, we think about it in terms of, well, God is trying to keep people from being too close to him, but actually God provides a way. Even though our sin separates us from the presence of God, God provided a way for Israel to meet with him. On the day of Yom Kippur, the priest was to take the blood of bulls and and of goats and and in a very prescribed ceremony, which I'm I'm not going to get into today, he would take that blood and he would enter into the most holy place covered with smoke and in a very detailed way put that blood on the mercy seat between the two cherubim. I can imagine if I were the high priest and it was my duty and I happen to be the high priest on the day of Yom Kippur, that might be a pretty frightful day, right? In fact, we're told that the, the, the tradition was, with that, was that the priest would put bells on the bottom of his, of his garment and that there would be a rope tied to him in case he did something wrong and they could always hear the bells as he kept going. I, I had a friend, I just thought of this, I had a friend who was an intern at the White House and he said that, um, he said that the, whenever President Bush was, would use the restroom, he was told to whistle. As long as he was whistling, the Secret Service knew he was okay. And if he stopped whistling, then they knew to go in and get him. It's kind of a, a crass analogy, but you get the point. As long as he's moving around, as long as we hear the bells, we know that the priest is okay. Because I imagine that for the priest, they're taught about how holy this place is. That the more they comprehended the holiness of God, the more they feared God's wrath, right? That's one way to look at it. The other way to look at it is that this was the most amazing opportunity that anyone could ever be afforded. The chance to come into the very presence of God, carried by the blood of bulls. So for many, the more that they comprehended the holiness of God, the more they appreciated this moment of mercy. God was teaching that judgment and justice and mercy are on God's terms, not on ours. In fact, he says it to Moses a little better. In Exodus chapter 33, verse 19, he says, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. So I want to take us back to that story in Jericho where Israel is marching around the city and they've got orders that they're to march and on the seventh day, they'll march again some more times and blow the trumpets and yell and the walls are going to come down and then Israel is supposed to go in and slaughter everybody. And that might make us all a little uncomfortable. We might be very uncomfortable with the thought of God uh, and pronouncing an execution of judgment on men, on children, on women. And that's okay to be uncomfortable with that. I don't think that should sit with, well with us. 
judgment, the judgment of God, as we learned about in the series of Habakkuk, should never sit well with us. But this is what Israel was instructed to do. And the bottom line is, is that these were people that were sinful. They deserved God's judgment, just like we all do. So we can look at this, at this story of Jericho, and we can say this is the story of Jericho, the fierce judgment of God on an unholy city. Much like we would look at going into the ark of, or into the most holy places, this is a very fearful and frightful moment. Or we can look at Jericho a different way. Jericho is the story of the sweet mercy of God on an undeserving woman named Rahab. Right? And not only that, but the moment of Jericho, this was, this was Israel's first battle into this land called Canaan. They'd heard about this land. They were promised this land. This land had been talked about for years and years and years. And finally, Israel was going to inhabit it. And I think that moment, that day after the battle of Jericho, I'm not sure people slept very well, having to execute that type of judgment. I wonder if many of them thought, why not me? Why am I so lucky? Why am I so fortunate to be given this affection by God and to be, tre- and to be treated with such kindness? In Deuteronomy chapter 7, the Lord says to Israel, the Lord did not set his affection on you and choose you because you were more numerous than other peoples, for you were the fewest of all people. But it was because the Lord loved you and kept the oath he swore to your ancestors. And he brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the land of slavery, from the power of Pharaoh. Because the point is, if there is no justice, there is no mercy. And the people of Israel needed to understand that in order to see mercy, they needed to see justice. In order for the priest to appreciate going into the, Ark of the, Co- into the room with the Ark of the Covenant, they had to understand the cost, the sacrifices that were needed to go in. For all along, this, was God, this is how God gave this lesson to Israel. And so for us, for all of us who are Gentiles, who don't grow up, with Yom Kippur and don't grow up with this deep understanding of the, of the fabric that God was using and that he was weaving. Sometimes it can get lost and we don't quite understand. But when, this is why I appreciate Yom Kippur is because when we look at it, we can see exactly what God means. Do you see how difficult it was to come into my presence? Now do you appreciate the mercy that I have for you? In Romans chapter 9, Paul talks about this. He says, What if God, although choosing to show his wrath and make his power known, bore with great patience the objects of his wrath prepared for destruction? So what if he did this to make the riches of his glory known to the objects of his mercy, whom he prepared in advance for glory, even us, whom he also called, not only from the Jews, but also from the Gentiles? For me, growing up, Whenever I would read the story of Jericho, and I don't know if it's the same for you, I would always picture myself on the outside of Jericho, right? I would always picture myself as one of those marching around the city because I am God's child, right? But as a Gentile, the reality is is that I would have been inside Jericho. And so when I look at this story and I look at the judgment that that was imposed on the Gentiles there in Canaan who opposed God and his people, I think, 
how fortunate I am that he displayed this judgment to others so that I might appreciate his mercy. When we recognize God's holiness, a few things happen. We understand first the weight of our sin. Paul says in Romans 3, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. But it's there that we don't stop. We also appreciate the gift of God's mercy. I had a, I had a student once who was a National Honor Society student, and he cheated on his exam. And, or maybe it was a test or a quiz or something. He cheated, and I caught him, and, um, and he lost. He was stripped of, his, of being in the NHS. And I remember talking to the director of the National Honor Society. I said, I feel really bad. I mean, it was a quiz. He cheated on it. I mean, you're stripping him of, of the National Honor Society. And he said to, and, he, and the teacher said to me, I'll never forget it. He said, you know, I always appreciate these moments because it's an opportunity to point him to the cross. So even though he had to experience the severe justice, and one might say it was totally justified, he also got to experience mercy and restoration. So Paul continues in Romans 3:23 with verse 24. He says, "Being justified as a gift by his grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in his blood through faith." In other words, what Paul is telling us is that when we understand the weight of God's holiness, we appreciate God's redeeming sacrifice and we understand that it's in our place. There's something else that's so beautiful about this, this, this theme that God continues to weave and the, and the illustrations that God continues to use throughout um, his life. And this is why I say that when we look at these, these festivals, primarily what they do is they point us to Jesus. So when Paul says, Paul in in Romans 3.24 uses that big word propitiation, it's actually a Greek word called hilasterion, and it means mercy seat. It means mercy seat. He says that Jesus is, is portrayed publicly as the mercy seat. Now there's a lot of things going on in that, and it's just a very, uh, you know, compounded phrase that Paul is using. Because what happened before? What happened before was that the mercy seat was always private, right? It was always the high priest going into the hidden room in order to make the sacrifice. And who was the sacrifice for? Only Israel. So it was a very private sacrifice. And what Paul is saying is that God displayed Jesus publicly as a mercy seat. Publicly meaning for both Jews and Gentiles once and for all. But not only is Jesus' uh, sacrifice, his death on the cross, a beautiful interweaving and reflection on the tabernacle and the Ark of the Covenant and the mercy seat, but also his resurrection. Take a look at this. I, always, I get chills when I read this. In John chapter 20, verse 11 and 12, it said, Now Mary stood outside the tomb crying, and as she wept, she bent over to look into the tomb and saw two angels in white, seated where Jesus' body had been, one at the head and the other at the foot. Does that look familiar? It was 
the mercy seat. Come and see where he lay. And so God, throughout all of history, gave Israel and then us this picture of the mercy seat so that we could comprehend in some small way the holiness of God and his perfection, but more than that, to appreciate his mercy. And the truth is, because we are redeemed by Jesus and the Holy Spirit lives in us, we have a connection with God that Moses only wish he had, right? We have the mercy seat in our own hearts. So the more that we draw closer to God because we can, because we have this access to God, the more holy he becomes. We realize that, hey, he's totally different than us. And the more that we meditate on God's law, as David says in Psalm 1, the more we understand both his severe justice, but then we also appreciate the sweetness of his mercy. And the more that we trust God, like the Israelites marching around Jericho, carrying the Ark of the Covenant, totally exposed, the more our impossible problems become opportunities to experience his power. So today, I invite you to the mercy seat. Because it's not an invitation of a place of fear, but a place of hope, and a place of love, and a place of forgiveness, and a place of mercy. I feel like a lot of people sometimes steer clear of God because they're afraid of him. They think that, you know what, I'm not, I don't have it all together to come into the presence of God. I don't, I, my life is too messed up. And, and maybe like, they feel like some of those high priests that maybe walked in with a little bit of trepidation, like, uh, I don't know that I should be doing this. But the point was, was not that the priest was perfect, but the sacrifice was perfect. And because the sacrifice was perfect, the priest could come in confidently before the Ark of the Covenant. But how much so can we, as the writer of Hebrews says, for we're not redeemed by the blood of bulls and goats that it would only satisfy for one day of the year. We are covered by the blood of the perfect Lamb, Jesus our Messiah, once and for all. Jews and Gentiles, men and women, slaves and free. Let's pray. Father, you are so amazing, and what a privilege it is to see your holiness and to experience it in some small, minute way. And as we looked at it today, we began to see, again in a small way, of how powerful and majestic you are and how perfect you are and how you weave this illustration that you are holy, that you are completely just, but in that justice we find your mercy. So Father, I pray that we might be comforted by what you have done for us. For the cross is the moment of hope for us. The sacrifice has been made in our place. God, I pray for each person here. For those that don't know you, who may be a little afraid, intimidated about taking a step towards your presence. 
I pray that you would wrap them in the comfort and knowledge that they are completely free and that the blood of Jesus completely covers them. And Lord, for us, I pray that you would compel us and help us to understand the power that we have, that each and every one of us are in some way carrying around the mercy seat inside of us. It is both the mercy of God and also the power of God. So that when we face the walls of Jericho, whatever they may be, and we feel the sense of hopelessness or overwhelming, that we can rest assured knowing that you are in control. And the battle is not ours. It is yours. It always has been and it always will be. Help us to walk faithfully with the process that you have prepared for us. For we know that you teach us through process. And help us to walk confidently, knowing that the victory is already ours. Just as you said to Joshua, see, I have already given Jericho to you. Thank you, God, for your amazing love for us. We are so privileged to be loved by you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to New Hope Chapel's podcast. Located in Arnold, Maryland, New Hope Chapel is a small expression of the much larger body of Christ that spans across the world. We're a group of believers helping each other on our lifelong journeys to become like Jesus. While we have a variety of distinctives that make us a unique church, our main desire is to be God's church, to love Him, follow Him, to learn from Him, to let Him lead us and change our lives. We are His disciples, and He is our rabbi. Join us in the story that God is writing called New Hope Chapel. To learn more about our church, visit us at newhopechapel.org or check us out on Facebook slash newhopechapelmd. Be sure to subscribe to our podcast and iTunes. Music kindly provided by the least of these. Thanks again for listening and God bless.